Thanks, Kevin. The pandemic that we've been living through over the last year uh, plus has stolen a lot of things from us as uh, individuals, as communities. It's taken from uh, families and friendships. It's caused us to have to go into isolation. And when we've been able to come out of isolation, it's put us in a weird kind of sort of half isolation. We have to cover our faces. We have to keep our distance. And when that happens in life, and I can't say when that happens as though this happens every other year or so, it's a first in my lifetime. I think it's a first in all our lifetimes. But when these type of things come our way and what we've discovered and experienced through this process is there could be a fracturing of community and it can really mess with your sense of where you belong, where your place is at. The structures that we depended on our families were splintered in a lot of ways, particularly if we had elderly mothers and fathers and grandparents who are living in facilities that we couldn't have access to. And so as we come to our text this morning, we come to a text that wrestles with the very nature of belonging. And we know uh, that in life, the sense of belonging is important. It's important to our lives. It's significant. It gives shape to a myriad of personal and communal relationships throughout our lives. We look at such things as our family of origin. You think about how that shapes your life and how uh, you live your life. A large part of that is based on where you grew up and who you grew up with. I know in youth ministry, oftentimes people would really depend on a youth worker. They would say, we've got to get a dynamic youth pastor in here. We've got to get uh, someone who'd be a Pied Piper. Now, if you read the rest of that story, it doesn't end well, so I don't know if I necessarily want to get a Pied Piper. Um, Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Read the rest of that story and then come back. But when we talk to families about the number one influence in their kids' lives, it's still the top of the chart continues to be mom and dad or the parental guardian in the household, whether that's for good or for bad. So our families play a big part in shaping us and giving us our identity of whether or not we belong or not. We also see it with our educational places and our workplaces. You see that with apparel clothing. Um, you see our schools will, will sell jerseys or polo shirts Uh, t-shirts with logos on them and there's a sense there that you belong to something you belong to a particular school a fan base Uh, you're part of the alumni association or your work you might carry a coffee mug with the the work logo on it again where you belong vocationally and it this list could go on and on and on with all the places where belonging connects uh, for us whether it's clubs we're part of or pool memberships Uh, it could be anywhere from the neighborhoods we live in the friendships and the affiliations uh, that we keep belonging marks that we are part of something, that we're part of someone's. Belonging is an important aspect of life true to the church as Jesus followers. We're not, we're not immune to that. This is something that crosses over to us as well. It's a big question for us in faith. In fact, two of our confessions in the, in the Presbyterian church, Heidelberg and the Brief Statement of Faith, both begin with giving witness to Scripture and using the language of belonging, that we belong to God, that we belong to Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised here when we come to this point in our text that there's going to be an apostolic showdown, right? We're not surprised by that because belonging is such a big part of what it means to be part of the church, to belong to one another, to belong to Jesus Christ, to belong to God. We're not surprised that when belonging is threatened that a showdown will ensue. Now, I told a friend a bunch of years ago uh, that if you were to film a film with like massive, impressive landscapes and throw cowboy hats on everybody, had them ride around horses, like I would go see it. 
Like, it doesn't take much. Like, you put a Western on the screen, I'm going to go see it. Because uh, some of my favorite movies fall in the genre, but even more specifically, a very particular uh, form of that genre. Uh, I love A Fistful of Dollars. I love A Few Dollars More. And I love The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Anybody? Wait, no one's going, ah. <laughs> I love those films. I love them. One of the things I, I, I like about them, I spent, uh, um, I actually spent a, a term in graduate school writing a paper about uh, that trilogy of films, uh, and, and I studied the, the director and what the director, Sergio Leone, was doing in those films. He brought in the whole genre of filmmaking uh, that was, that's actually now a lot of people try to, try to copy it, but what he would do is, you think about the old westerns before uh, those films, they had one particular look. But Leon, when they got to gunfights, you'll remember this, the camera angle is like right on the eyes of people. And then you see the eyes of this person, and the eyes of that person, and the eyes of that person. And then there'd be wide sweeping landscapes, and then back to the eyes again. And you just see the tension and the emotion and all the stuff that was building up in those characters as it's heightened before guns are drawn. Well, if Leon was to be given the rights to the film adaptation here for our text, I imagine a similar technique would be employed here. That you would have the camera on Paul would have these kind of eyes that were like knowing eyes looking at Peter. And then it would go to Peter. And Peter would be like surprised eyes. And then it would be back to Paul again. And it would be these glaring eyes. Like I got this wrong. And then Peter once again and his head would be hanging. And that's what this would look like. That's what the beginning of our text would show up. But having read last week, there might be a little bit of surprise for us. In having read last week's text, where Peter and James and John, these significant figures, these literally called pillars of the church, are affirm and are affirming of that same gospel that Paul is preaching. That they all appear to be on the same team, and they validate that message, and they validate this messenger. But when we come to this point in the text, again, back to those eyes, that collective agreement that they might have had about the poor now looks different. There's now disagreement exists. And here's how Paul would describe it. First thing he says this in the second part of verse 12. Peter used to eat with Gentiles. I don't hear any surprise here in the 21st century. <laughs> Peter used to eat with Gentiles. Operative words there, used to and Gentiles. Doesn't seem like all that radical kind of stuff for us here in the 21st century. Particularly for us as a, as a Gentile congregation. We're not super surprised. We don't, we're not uh, thrown into a panic when we hear this. But in a first century church, where they're trying to make a go of it, where they're trying to bring Jewish Christians together with non-Jewish Christians, when they're trying to form a religious faith community that is not separated by ethnic backgrounds and not by national identity, um, it's going to be a bit of a struggle. It's going to be a bit of a challenge. And so as they try to make a, a go of it, they cross dietary divides and any uh, other expressions that they might have that were purely Jewish. They kind of set those aside. So, so here's Peter. He's making a go of it. He's saying there's something bigger that we're part of. I can come to the table. And Paul says, yeah, you used to do that. You used to eat with your Gentile siblings. But know what it says in the first part of verse 12. But then Peter chooses not to. <laughs> he chooses not to. Instead, he decides to observe his cultural biases, decides to live into a particular identity, a place where he felt he belonged before Christ. He decides to live in that place. And the text here identifies his drawing back out of a fear about what others might think. 
and specifically those others that he has in mind uh, here is this group that's called a circumcision faction. Where they might be surprised and shocked, where they might be troubled and upset here at this point, uh, particularly seeing this Jewish apostle consorting with a Gentile audience. And this shrinking back here, doesn't that sound like Peter? The moment of crisis, the moment of, of, of being pressed into a corner. We've heard this story in the life of this person before. We read in the Jesus story, we hear about this same Peter when confronted whether or not he knows the Jesus who's on trial, says, I don't know the man. Does it three times. And so Paul here sees Peter once more shrinking back. It's part of his own story here. Shrinking back, but Paul here will call him on it. He'll say in verse 13, that's hypocrisy. You're living into a hypocritical way of living. He notes that Peter stands self-condemned. That it's obvious what the error is here. And we learn in this text that Peter's not alone in that. That actually Barnabas will follow him into this same error. And that error, of course, here in Galatians, is where Gentile would-be uh, or would-be disciples are required to be Jewish followers. That they're now required to adhere to Jewish practices. And that, according to Paul, runs counter to what freedom in Christ is. It runs counter in verse 14 to the truth of the gospel. Remember back in chapter 1? Remember what Paul said to them back in verse 6 of chapter 1? This audience that's quickly deserting the one who had called them in the grace of Christ and was turning to a different gospel. Paul here gives you a different picture of what it looks like. He, he already told us that Titus wasn't compelled to go that direction. But now he shows us Peter, this great fixture in the church, is failing here, and Barnabas as well. So we see how easy it is to slide into these things, to move back and forth. You might know what's right, but then you end up over in this other place. And that's where Peter and Barnabas find themselves and where Paul is calling them to a different way forward. Paul wants each one of us here this morning, but also, particularly in the first century, he wants these folks in the, the churches here, the Galatian Christians, he wants them to move forward in a more faithful way. And what he does here is he begins to paint the picture of what that more faithful way looks like. And it has something to do with belonging to the Jesus community and more specifically how we belong. And that's where Paul will go next. Now, in music, sometimes if you listen to songs, you'll hear, particularly in popular music, you might hear a, a singer say, break it down. Paul's going to break it down here for us. He's going to say, hey, let's, let's draw attention. Let's pull all the instruments out for a second, and let's just go down and get down to the very base, basic units here and talk about what's going on. N.T. Wright in his commentary actually frames the question here for us in this way. He says, who are the people of God? Are they to be defined ethnically? And he uses this term, or messianically. And Paul's answer to this rolls on the reader like a popular singer in that break it down kind of motif. Here's what he says. First thing he says this is Jewish Christians know, Jewish Christians know this, all right? This is not a surprise to Jewish Christians. They know that someone is not justified by the works of the law. So Paul, who's a Jewish Christian, says this is something we already know, all right? This is not going to be new. This is not a newsflash. We know we're not justified by the law, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ or uh, Christ's own faithfulness. See that in verse 16. Actually, if you look at this text 
And if you look in your, if you have an NRSV or the Pew Bible there, you'll notice there's a lot of footnoting that goes on with this. Uh, the actual language behind this has a couple options uh, that when we look at the translation of it, um, it has to do with the, the, the tenses and, and the way that the Greek is, is set out there. It can either be object or subject. And so what happens is they're trying to capture either one. But as you go through the argument here, I will probably, you'll hear me use, not probably, but you'll hear me actually use throughout here, Christ's own faithfulness as the expression here. The second thing Paul identifies uh, for the, the readers here and, and for these hearers is that any failed efforts or attempts to return to, the, to past expressions, those don't say anything about Christ, but they say everything about our own efforts. Maybe we might add our own sad efforts to reclaim something, possibly out of fear like Peter, to go back, to return. You think about of old, the Israelites of old who want to return back to Egypt, to go back to a more comfortable place. It's hard sometimes to live in freedom. It's hard to live in that place, particularly in Christian freedom. And as we look at those particular verses in verses 17 to 18, we also learn of what the law is capable of and what it's not able to do. And the last thing that Paul identifies here for us in this this little grouping of verses is there's an altogether different on-ramp. Because of Jesus Christ, we belong, and that's because of God's own doing. It's not something that we accomplish. It's not some way that we mark ourselves in the flesh. It's not even how we adhere to a particular thing that the very basic how you belong in faith, how you belong to the church, how you belong in the Jesus community is done because of what Jesus has accomplished, what God has accomplished in Christ. For Gentiles, we don't have to become Jews, but rather we have been claimed, as Paul will say, by the self-giving one's own faithfulness. That's why I chose that different reading, that second reading option. It sounds like it's more consistent with what's happened. The idea that we might trade one practice of works for another practice of works, namely our faith activating, or our faith not necessarily activating, but being the source of why we might belong, it doesn't sound quite of Jesus' own doing, which we hear throughout the Scripture, that it's God who loved the world. That's God who gave. And so in this, we find that our level of belonging, the thing that marks us, is far more significant than being marked in the flesh or even from some sort of public religious display. We're marked at a completely different and deeper level. And so that's what it means to be one who's defined messianically. And with this in place, Paul uh, concludes quite naturally and concludes our reading with this. If justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If we have to go back and reclaim something before Christ to make it all work, then what was the point of having Christ after all, is what Paul goes on to say here. And this morning, Paul wants you and me to hear that Christ indeed did die for something, or maybe more specifically, that Christ died for someone's. And that means everything. It means that we can belong that we can belong to Jesus Christ, that we can belong to God. And I imagine this morning that uh, if you read this passage or even hearing the passage here this morning, uh, some here might have your head spinning going, there's a lot of talk of justification and going off on all this kind of lingo that I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I read that and I go, what? Jimmy, how am I supposed to understand and and see that picture of this note that you're painting or this picture you're painting of Paul saying that we belong? Well, there's a, uh, 
uh, professor back east. Her name is Mary Hinkle Shore. She provides kind of a, a lens for us or a way of reading the text that might prove helpful to those who might be struggling to understand or wrap your mind around Paul's argument here and to hear those pastoral notes that he offers. And this is what she says. When, when you read the, the text, replace the words justify and justification with belong and belonging. So which is the ultimate goal of what is accomplished there. Um, replace it with that. And when you do, you'll be able to recover where Paul is going here with his argument, what he's saying and what it means to be the people of God. And at the same time to see how that's possible. So Paul's understanding of Christian freedom, which is so key to the gospel witness uh, to the Gentiles, as we learned in chapter 1, uh, verse 16, is witness to in our own confessions. We hear that in a confession like Belhar, which says, we believe that true faith in Jesus Christ is the only condition of membership in this church. This, of course, is good news uh, for the nations. It's good news for us. It's bad news for those who are trying to require Gentiles to observe Jewish customs. Of course, the question here for us this morning is, does any of this even matter to us? <laughs> we're not even Jewish Christians. Like, what does this even matter? This is not even a debate we're having. John Knox Presbyterian Church has not been debating whether or not Gentile Christians need to become Jewish. At least I have not seen that in any of the session minutes, and we certainly haven't talked about it in the just over a year I've been here. So is this even relevant to us? Does the church, is this a question that we even raise? Like, why does it matter who belongs? We've settled that a long time ago. Have we? Have we? I have a colleague of mine uh, who shared in his first church that he served in as a new pastor. There was a Hispanic woman that used to work in their child care uh, program. She'd run the nursery on Sunday mornings. She wasn't allowed to come into the worship service because she was Hispanic and the church was Anglo. They said, we're not going to allow you to come and worship with us. That was in America. That happened in our country. When I was in elementary school, my family began attending a congregation that was closer to where we lived. The first hour was Sunday school. The second hour was worship. We went to the Sunday school classroom. When my brother and I walked through the door and were being introduced to the teacher, a kid in the, in the program looked at us and said, we don't want you here. In a conversation this past week, this past week, I was talking to someone on the phone who was Episcopalian. And they asked the question if I would consider them a Christian brother because they're Episcopalian and I'm Presbyterian. We still wonder, even in our day and age, who and how we belong. Apostle Paul here has a word for us in that. To recognize that our belonging, the fact that we have an identity that we can come together and be familyed together, that we can come together and belong in this place, is made possible not by the roadblocks that we put up, not by the questions that we ask, but rather by Jesus Christ and what Christ has done and accomplished on our behalf is why we can come together and why we should come together. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to I close this time with a few questions for us to ponder. I'm going to have us just take a few moments uh, in between the questions to consider them um, just in our own hearts. Uh, these questions come from Alicia Vargas. Uh, she's a professor at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary. And she draws these questions from this text, and I think they're helpful for us 
particularly as we set out as a congregation in the days ahead, uh, we want to be a place where people belong and know they belong. We want to be a place where people know Christ and know that Christ has provided a, a place and a space, a community for them to be loved, to be cherished, and know that they're beloved by God. So these questions are, are helpful to us, kind of shaping what that looks like uh, for us to live into that. So question number one is this. To what extent is our congregation mixed at all? Combinations of people from divergent ethnic and religious slash denominational backgrounds. And so that's the first question. So what extent is our congregation mixed at all? Where do we see combinations of people from divergent ethnic and religious denominational backgrounds? Second question here, do we diligently strive to find ways to be both fully respectful of racial and ethnic differences among the people while at the same time being mindful and discerning of what are those things that are, that are and are not essential in making us who we are? Do we diligently strive to find ways to be both fully respectful of racial and ethnic differences among the people while at the same time being mindful and discerning of what we are or what are those things that are, are and are not essential in making us who we are. And the last question for us to consider this morning. In our churches, and particularly in our church and our congregation here, do we implicitly or explicitly require new participants, quote-unquote members, to conform to previously existing patterns of congregational behavior? Are there requirements or expectations for specific doctrinal affirmations or other expected behaviors? This week, I'm going to post these questions out for us to see on Realm so you can have a chance to spend some time considering those questions even further. But let me end on a, on a hopeful note for us as a congregation. There's a lot of hopeful notes here. I don't, I don't mean to say that there's only one hopeful note here. But this past week, I had the opportunity uh, to sit with a, a colleague and a friend um, and have a conversation about our life together as a church. Uh, Pastor Robert Ruiz uh, who serves on the session, but is also serves as a pastor uh, to our Spanish uh, language worshiping community that, that meets here on Sundays um, and, and serves and worships in this, this, this space and also in this community. Uh, we were talking about the all-church camping trip later in June. And I said, have you ever been invited to that? Have you ever been part of that? And he said, no, I don't, I don't know if I know what that is and stuff. And so we started talking about it. I said, I think it'd be great for you to come and be part of that. Robert agreed. And so he promptly booked, uh, I know he booked four spots for sure. Um, I think it's his intention to bring his congregation to come to the camping trip in June. That's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome for all of us. 
to be awesome for us to go forward and say, here's another, yet another chance for us to come together as sisters and brothers. And so my encouragement to all of us is, is not encouragement from me, but it's encouragement from Paul. Know that you belong in Christ. Know that you belong because of Christ. And as we continue in the days going forward together, as we serve together, as we worship together, as we come together as community, may we do so knowing that Christ goes before us, beside us, and within us, and walks with each one of us, as diverse as we are, as diverse as the nations are. Thanks.